and welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast. I'm Colette Allen and I'm with Tom Bennett and Paul Rowe to discuss the latest Media Law headlines. We will be talking about the much-anticipated Supreme Court decision in Lloyd and Google, the Duchess of Sussex appeal, footballers' data protection rights, and an Oxford County Court decision that caught the attention of Amazon. But first of all, I want to start with Dr Salem Butt's case against the Home Secretary, Uh, Just two days before recording, on the 15th of November 2021, the Home Secretary has apologised to Dr Salem Butt, the editor of Islam 21C, for a press release that was published in September 2015, which accused Dr Butt of being an extremist hate preacher who legitimises terrorism, and from whose poisonous and precunious influence students should be protected. The allegation was completely false, The Home Secretary has appealed the meaning that Mr Justice Nicholl found in 2017. The Court of Appeal agreed with that assessment in 2019, and only now has the Home Secretary apologised. Full damages have been awarded, as well as full costs to Dr Butt, and um, of course there was the open statement in court this week. Um, This is an absolutely appalling case. The government has been dragged kicking and screaming into admitting it was utterly wrong to have published this entirely indefensible, false, defamatory allegation. Um, It should never have been uh, contested, should never have been appealed after it had been contested. Uh, The government dragging this through the courts instead of apologizing is an abhorrent waste of money, waste of time, and a quite disgusting way to treat uh, the claimant who did not deserve to have his name dragged through the mud. Uh, And uh, I have absolutely no time for this sort of behavior from the government. It is not uncommon that the government pursues appeals in cases without strong legal grounds for doing so. Uh, We've seen it in a number of different contexts over the years. It's almost certainly not the first time that I've said something like this on the podcast, Um, but uh, I I hope that saying it in strong enough terms that uh, get across the message, at least to our uh, uh, to our regular listeners. I don't expect anyone in government to be listening to this, nor that government strategy would change just because I complain about it. Um, but let's be an absolutely no two minds about this. This was dreadful. And I hope it's never repeated. I couldn't agree more. And on that, though, let's move on to the Lloyd and Google case. Google has won its appeal in the Supreme Court's with a unanimous verdict that rejected the Court of Appeals ruling that compensation can be awarded for loss of control of personal data by reason of any non-trivial contravention of the Data Protection Act, without the need to prove facts relating to specific individuals. So the claim cannot now proceed as a representative action under Civil Procedure Rule 19.6, because members of the class do not have the same interest. So there's a a difference in understanding here between um, the the Data Protection Act and misuse of private information because they specifically ruled out that loss of control element of harm. Uh, Is there anything that either of you want to comment on this? 
no, other than to say that I think uh, this is a sensible decision in that, uh, of course, what, uh, what happens uh, or what can happen in, in this sort of area is that you sort of inadvertently create a sort of cottage industry uh, for uh, lawyers um, that uh, enables claimants, even with spurious claims, uh, to attempt to extract uh, a negotiated settlement uh, from a company or a party um, uh, and use this kind of decision as a bargaining chip. I don't know for sure, but I imagine that already this case, Lloyd and Google, has been used by uh, prospective claimants in order to extract uh, settlements, early settlements uh, from defendants on the basis of uh, data breaches. The Data Protection Act is not there uh, to provide windfalls for inadvertent or for limited breaches of the Data Protection Act uh, in circumstances where the impact on the claimant is minimal or trivial or even, as in this case, unknown. One thing you said there that I want to ask a bit more about, um, the word trivial and and non-trivial claims is a big part of this judgment. Is trivial a standard yeah. that's set in uh, the Data Protection Act itself, or is that a, a concept that's explained in case law? And how do we go about assessing what claims are seen as trivial and non-trivial? Yes, well, I, I think the, the short answer to that is it's an, it's a matter for a judge to make a decision upon. I mean, t- trivial interferences uh, is not really something that a legislation can prescribe. Um, but the fact pattern of Lloyd and Google gives us an idea of how we assess uh, trivial and non-trivial. Uh, by reference to the nature of the breach, the number of breaches, uh, and the impact of the breach or breaches upon the uh, data owner. Um, Here, we had uh, a series of technical breaches uh, in that there there were ongoing acts which were said to constitute the breach, Um, but not of a sufficient magnitude to cause uh, a serious uh, data breach for all in the the, uh, class of potential claimants. And I think that was one of the real difficulties here for the claimants uh, to show that there was some causal impact that resulted from this. Has loss of control been tied to this trivial threshold in any way? So if, say, um, claimants were able to show that the breach was non-trivial, would they still have to show that specific harm was caused? Well, yeah. So I think this is another aspect to the case that will be important and will make it an invaluable resource going forward, because I think this question of what counts as a loss of control is one that needs a bit more judicial scrutiny. I mean, I appreciate we just had the Supreme Court look at it, so we're unlikely to get many more cases looking at it in greater detail. My concern with loss of control is that it's read too literally as information that one possesses and then jealously guards. The difficulty with that is that kind of reading 
feels more like an understanding of confidentiality or feels like a, a synonym for confidentiality rather than for privacy. There are lots of circumstances in which uh, we have private information, uh, but we share that information with others. Now, the, if the act of sharing amounts to a loss of control, uh, then we have a serious problem here in the uh, conceptual realisation of privacy in terms that are not identical or nearly identical to confidentiality. All right, sticking with uh, data protection just for the moment, I, I want to mention Russell Slade's uh, claim on behalf of 850 professional footballers uh, to retake control of the huge amounts of data on them that's traded and relied upon by betting firms, data collection agencies and entertainment companies. There was a piece on Inform that speculated how this argument would run, uh, which hasn't, it's not based on the claim um, form, no, the, the article hadn't seen it at the time of writing, but the, it assumed that the uh, claim would continue on an Article 6.1a of the UK GDPR ground, uh, which is that the data subjects concerned, which here in footballers, have not consented to the data being collected, processed, used or sold. Um, what do we think of this claim? Do we think uh, that it, it could be successful? Well, I'm not in a great position to analyse it not being a data protection specialist, it does sound pretty niche um, as an argument, this type of um, personal data, if it is indeed personal data. And I think that's probably where the argument is going to be had. Um, these are professional footballers who play games uh, in public, some of them televised, um, and the games are observed by everyone who is present and everyone who is watching. Some of those people um, are from statistics companies that observe the game in a very particular way. Uh, they record statistics for the players uh, in a whole range of categories. And over time, these are built up into databases of statistics that can be used to analyze player performance. And that data then gets used it is sold on to and used by betting companies um, and by, uh, in, in some cases, uh, football clubs for scouting. Um, it's used by uh, makers of computer games that, that use statistical analysis of players to rate them. Um, so a lot of different uses. Um, I, I suspect that what is perhaps driving this is less a concern for the privacy of the footballers and that would explain this being brought as a, as a data protection case if indeed that is what happens um, and more an attempt to control certain commercial interests that flow from the performances of the players um, so there is obviously a vast amount of money that is made in betting markets um, which are reliant on this information and I suspect that the footballers want a slice of that cake. Um, I, I think there's probably a legitimate um, commercial argument that they ought to have a slice of that cake, um, but I'm not in a great position to analyze the legal um, basis for that. I can understand it, 
Um, at the same time, that the use of statistics is not limited to um, betting companies and gaming companies and so forth. Stats are used all over the place. I mean, if you if if you follow um, football punditry in this country, if you follow the very many podcasts and increasingly detailed statistical analysis of um, outlets like The Athletic, um, which does written analysis and, and podcasts associated with it, um, and you look at writers like uh, like Michael Cox, um, who who rely on um, statistical analysis simply to produce punditry for people. Um, and some of these podcasts are, are, are professional and some of them are less so. It forms the basis of discussion. Um, and I think it'd be difficult to draw the line, I think is what I'm saying, between um, the uses that are clearly commercial and the ones that are more akin to a couple of friends having a chat about football statistics in the pub. They're, at the extremes, yes, you can see the difference between the betting company and the guys in the pub. But there is going to be a line that has to be drawn somewhere in the middle. And I think that might be quite difficult. It's going to be an interesting one to see, um, just to see what happens with it um, uh, going forward. I, I don't think anything will happen. I think it'll get struck out. Why? Well, it just strikes me as opportunistic. Um, it doesn't strike me as a substantial uh, enough claim that warrants uh, even a defence being filed. Um, uh, so it, I would imagine that the people representing the uh, the defendants will go for a, an early an early strikeout. It seems to me that um, to the extent there is uh, something substantial here, there isn't a cause of action because it, it sounds to me more like an image rights kind of claim that someone is profiting uh, from my likeness, for example, from my likeness in uh, computer games. Or from my um, my stride, or my um, my distinctive gait, or uh, from my uh, football skills, uh, which is a sort of extension of my of my image. Um, well, we don't have image rights in this country, uh, not in the in the way that we would find image rights protection in uh, certain other jurisdictions. So I can't really see that going uh, anywhere. And it, it seems to me that they're trying to use the Data Protection Act in order to create a kind of quasi uh, image right here on the basis that this is uh, data. Now, I think the difficulty here is in trying to, and as Tom said, it's all, it's going to be, this case is going to be about the definition of personal data. Um, if we're saying that the number of times uh, a footballer touches a ball during the game uh, or a heat map that's generated by the uh, footballer, where do they spend the most time on the pitch? Uh, how many crosses did they put in? How accurate were those crosses? Etc. Etc. Um, How is that personal data when it's performed in public? All of it takes place in public. This is not... Um, uh, information that is sort of created it's not information that's comparable to say uh confidentiality although of course i've just said privacy is broader than confidentiality but it doesn't have a confidential quality to it so what is it that makes this personal data sort of personal to the individual 
Um, I think this would involve a real stretch of what we mean by personal data uh, to say that this is either data that's associated with the individual. For example, this is a person known to take 52 touches in the first 10 minutes. Well, who, who are we talking about when we use that kind of data? Um, the other difficulty, I think, is um, that the other part of the claim that seems to be going on here relates to inaccuracy. So where an inaccurate portrayal of a performance leads to some sort of emotional distress, for example, which would either bring it into the remit of defamation uh, and make data protection um, uh, not the, the appropriate cause of action. But of course, there's no defamation claim there because you'd never get past the section one test. Um, is it a misuse of private information? I don't really see that. I don't see this generating a reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, and I think the the other great difficulty with this, if you if you were to pursue the sort of inaccuracy claim, is the sort of chilling effect that it has on ordinary journalistic reporting of uh, a footballer's performance during a game. For as long as I can remember. Footballers have always been given a score out of 10 for how they got on, and that score is entirely arbitrary. And sometimes those scores will be grossly unfair and inaccurate and uh, make the footballer feel feel worthless, I'm sure. Um, and whilst I'm sympathetic to the immense pressures that professional footballers are put under, and whilst I don't think that the immense pay they get compensates them or insulates them from those feelings of hurt and distress... I don't see that this is an area where the law can help them. And when Paul talks about inaccuracy, I'm reminded of an incident from a few years ago now, maybe three or four years ago, um, a lower league footballer in England, uh, a man by the name of Adebayo Akinfenwa, who uh, has played for Wickham Wanderers, um, AFC Wimbledon, um, uh, he has prided himself in his career, which has never hit you know the, the highest heights. He's not played in the Premier League, um, but he's been a very solid centre forward in the lower leagues. Um, he's prided himself on being the strongest footballer in the world. Um, he's nicknamed the Beast. He is an immensely big man, um, very muscular. You know, can bench press ninety times his own body weight plus a lorry or whatever. Um, there was an incident a few years ago when the latest FIFA video game came out and uh, he had his character is on the game, um, but was no longer the strongest footballer in the world. He had there were other players rated as having a higher strength value than him. Uh, and he, he was upset about that. Uh, what did he do? Uh, if memory serves, he got on Twitter and told FIFA, don't be ridiculous. I'm the strongest footballer in the world. And if you need proof, come down to my local gym and I'll, you know, lift you up. Um, mm -hmm. And I think FIFA pretty quickly relented on that and reinstated him as, you know, having strength 3000 or whatever on the game. Um, that seemed to me to be a quite sensible way to deal with inaccuracy um, of this sort. Well, you know, it's, it's not defamatory to say that, you know, there, there is a, a footballer in a higher profile league who has a stronger a higher strength rating on a video game. Not really. It's not serious enough. Um, but if you're really upset about it, get on Twitter and tell them you made a mistake here and challenge them to sort it out. 
Um, and, and that seems to happen quite a lot. I don't know FIFA statistics, but um, uh, that that is the one I remember. It tickled me at the time. And it's fun to remember. Yeah. All right, I want to move on, but before we do, I just want to have a laugh with listeners that when I first raised this as a topic today, Tom and Paul were both like, "Oh, we don't have much to say on this," but you seem to <laughs> fill the airways. <laughs> Find it within yourselves. Um, all right, I, I want to talk about the Duchess of Sussex case. The appeal was um, this week, heard on the 9th, and, 9th to the 11th of November in the a Court of Appeal. So Associated Newspaper Limiteds is um, appealing the grant summary judgments that was granted in February of this year, I believe, February and May of this year, to the Duchess of Sussex in the action for misuse of private information, infringement of copyright and breach of data protection rights in respects of in respect of extracts of a letter written to her father that was published in the Mail on Sunday and the Mail Online. Frequent listeners will of course know this case well. On appeal, Associated News has sought to rely on new evidence from Jason North, who's the former communications chief to the Sussexes, emails and texts between Miss Markle and North suggest that the Duchess of Sussex had contemplated that the letter would be leaked and this um, ANL is arguing should be explored at full trial. Mark Stevens, the uh, well-known media solicitor, has told The Guardian that he believed that there was a 60 to 65% chance that the court would allow ANL's appeal. What are your thoughts on this? What does that mean? A statistical analysis is personal data. What? I don't know. <laughs> well, what, what does that mean? A 60 to 65% chance? I mean, that sounds wonderfully specific, doesn't it? But he's pretty much just hedged his bets. I, I think they might win, but, you know, 35 to 40% chance that they're going to lose. Uh, look, there are two issues in this. Um, in, in this case. No, of... I want to talk about the statistics. Of course you do. Um, it's this case of. The, the indefensible claim um, that just won't go, the defence won't go away. Um, uh, Paul wrote at length um, about how this claim had no good defence um, earlier in the year. Uh, and, and nothing that Paul has said is changed by uh, the supposed revelations in this appeal, so far as I can see. There are two significant new pieces of information. Now, I say significant in the sense of having inverted commas around them, because I'm not sure it is remotely significant. Um, The first is that um, uh, there is some evidence that uh, Megan, in writing the letter, couched it in language that would not be too detrimental to her were the letter to be leaked. Now, uh, Associated Newspapers are leaping on this and saying, well, this means she intended it to become public, um, which is self-evidently nonsense. Um, A lot of us, I should think, in our daily lives take care when we write things like emails to ensure that they are couched in temperate language just in case they end up being seen by somebody else other than the intended recipient, as happens from time to time when we get copied into email chains and so on and so forth. Um, it doesn't mean that we expect the email to cease to be private. Uh, and never has done. So the idea that you write something carefully just in case is not tantamount to waiving one's right to privacy over that information. In any event, the waiver argument is 
pretty dead in misuse of private information law. Um, even if it weren't, this wouldn't be a waiver. The second piece of supposedly mind-blowing new evidence is that uh, the uh, Sussexes have apparently admitted, uh, and I think Megan is, 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 is the main one here we're talking about, um, has, uh, have admitted that uh, they did indeed speak indirectly, so through an employee, to the uh, individuals who authored an unofficial biography of them and gave them indirectly some information in order to ensure there was a degree of accuracy in what was being written. And again, A&L are jumping on this and saying that, uh, you know, this, this is, a, in essence, a waiver of privacy over the matters, uh, not only in the autobiography, but over everything, um, including the letter that, that, that Megan's written to her father. And again, it's an attempt at the waiver argument. And again, the waiver argument is pretty much dead. So I don't see that either of these uh, these revelations have any significant relevance to the claim. And I can't see the Court of Appeal overturning the first instance judgment on the basis of it. Um, I mean, it is stranger things have happened in the legal world, I'm sure. Um, but uh, I, 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 I just don't see this one happening. Uh, this just feels to me like ANL dragging matters out to throw the weight around a bit. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, uh, Tom. Um, and thank you for speaking on my behalf. You're welcome. Uh, I, like, I like to I appreciate that. It, I mean, I was, I was shocked, of course. This, I think this is the first time you've ever actually agreed with me, and perhaps we should mark that occasion. <laughs> with appropriate music or something or a fanfare. Um, but this is, sadly, uh, the Daily Mail just making life difficult for an individual who has challenged them, who has challenged them in open court, uh, has held them up as being a bully, because they are bullies. And so what do they do to show that they're not bullies? Well, they do a bit more bullying. Uh, and it gives them more opportunity to prod and poke those that um, pique their interest from time to time. There are no legal arguments that support what they did. There are no. There is no way the law can um, defend their actions. Now, I hope that the Court of Appeal is brave enough to also stand up to Associated Newspapers, as Mr Justice Warby did, and to tell them in no uncertain terms that their appeal is a nonsense and that they will be paying the costs that they have wasted uh, in defending this action. What troubles me, of course, is that organisations like the Daily Mail have created such an inhospitable environment for judges to operate because they generate stupid titles for their newspapers like enemies of the people which then causes hostilities to be directed towards individuals and then they act surprised so my i know that the daily mail won't change because they're a they're a business at the end of the day they're there to make a profit they're there to make their shareholders happy 
Uh, they pretend that they're interested first and foremost in the public interest. They are interested in nothing of the sort. Um, the only way to get through to organisations like the Daily Mail is to hit them where it hurts, which is their finances. So this is the Court of Appeals opportunity to do just that. Well, interestingly, on the uh, shareholder point, uh, I, I believe the Daily Mail is about to be taken private. Um, so uh, there won't be so many uh, shareholders to satisfy. Maybe that will reform them. Maybe. Um, all right. I, I want to talk about our final uh, little segment today, and that's the case of Fairhurst and Woodard, which was heard in the Oxford County Court a few weeks ago um, and is based on security cameras and an Amazon Ring doorbell, which was found to have an unjustifiably invaded the privacy of a neighbour and broke data protection laws as well as contributing to harassments. The judge in that case, Judge Melissa Clark, held that the audio data collected by the cameras mounted on the defendant's shed and the ring doorbell itself was processed unlawfully, in part because the doorbell could collect audio conversations that were held up to 60 feet away from the premises. This this judgment managed to spark an interest by Amazon itself, who released a statement warning its users of ring doorbells to be careful about uh, where they place it and um, make sure that they are aware of the function that turns off audio recording, which was only introduced in 2020 before this claim was uh, begun. But I just wonder what we thought of uh, this this finding that audio data can capture conversations and, and be more problematic than video data, which is actually what one of the um, one of the statements in the judgment itself. Sixty feet is a heck of a distance to be capturing audio data. I mean, I cannot see for the life of me how that is integral to the functioning of a doorbell. Um, it's one thing to have a doorbell where a delivery person can ring the doorbell and you're not in and it goes to your phone and the delivery person goes, hello, are you in? You say, no, I'm on the phone. They say, okay, well, I'll put your parcel here. Um, that, that, if the delivery person is standing 60 feet away, they could still have that conversation. Well, that's not necessary, is it? 60 feet would go right across the street um, in, in, in most residential parts of the UK. Um uh, it, it, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people who have bought this equipment don't realise just how much data it's capable of hoovering up. Um, the, the fault here lies with Amazon. Why on earth have they put a, 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 such a sensitive... I mean, that must have taken... cost a fortune to develop a microphone that's that sensitive. I mean, the microphone that I'm recording this podcast on wouldn't pick me up for, uh, from 60 feet away, not by, not by a long stretch. Um, I, 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 the mind boggles as to why they've invested vast amounts of money, presumably, in developing such a sensitive microphone, uh, at which point enter conspiracy theories about establishing a commercial global surveillance network uh, through these sorts of devices. But I'm not going to indulge those. Um, let's, let's just say... This is concerning, but it's, um, it's Amazon's fault. Um, uh, and I think this should probably be a defense for anyone who did not genuinely know that this is what the devices did. I'm not going to second guess the findings of fact of a court that was prepared to find that there was harassment. Um, doubtless there are particular factual circumstances behind this case that led 
to that finding that we're not privy to. Of course, if there are any casting directors listening, uh, I think Tom has proved that he would be more than an adequate substitute in future for any remake of this advert. Um, his exchange there of what happens during one of these uh, adverts I thought was flawless and demonstrated the full range of his acting abilities. Tom is available for very reasonable rates and mm. I am his agent. <laughs> okay, I think that's a nice place to uh, wrap up for today. Uh, thank you very much, Tom and Paul, for joining me as always. Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Colette. And as ever, follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast, and we will be back with more newscasts in the weeks to come. Thanks very much. Bye.